It is great to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Uh, And if you're here for the first time, we are especially glad that you joined us, uh, whether it's here in person or online. A lot of us remember how hard it is to go to a church for the first time. And so we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, wanted, right at home. Uh, As a reminder, we've got more kiddos here in the room this morning than normal because our Vista kids are not open yet. We'll be soon, but not yet. And parents, just wanted to remind you that, you know, if your kid, I don't know, happens to act like a kid in here today, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's not a distraction. We are grateful to be able to worship together with our children. And we are grateful to be at a church where there are a lot of children in the room because it means we're passing down the faith to the next generation. And so that's just something we're thankful for today. I don't know about you all, but one of the things the last few months has taught me is I'm a very entitled person. Oh my goodness, I expect everything to go just my way all the time. And so I got to tell you, just being able to gather here today, mask, RSVPs, kids, no, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just grateful to be in the room with my church family. Amen? And that's a good posture to have. Let go of the entitlement and be grateful. We don't deserve any of this stuff, man. It's all a gift of a very, very good God. Today, we are in the fourth week of our series called How to Be, a series where we are evaluating our hurry sickness. We're sick. We're in a hurry. By exploring the deep rhythms and resources of Christian faith, we have observed that somewhat paradoxically, many of our lives are out of control and they've picked up too much speed precisely because we've been free to do whatever we want. I mean, we've done whatever we've wanted. And now we are the most hurried, anxious, and addicted society in the history of the world. Literally. It's enough to make you think, right? That maybe, just maybe, doing whatever you want is not what's best for you. Because when you just do whatever you want, you just become a slave to yourself. And I got to tell you, you don't want to be a slave to yourself. I've spent a lot of my life being a slave to myself, and I'm not a very good master. Now, rather, we've said that true freedom rather than doing whatever you want, is being who God says you are, is surrendering to our destiny as the sons and daughters of God, is submission to the easy yoke of Christ. That's real freedom, not doing whatever we want. So Thomas Hobbes, he was a big deal a few years back, famously said that human life before the dawn of civilization was nasty, brutish, and short. Now, human life used to be nasty, it was brutish, and it was short. And of course, the the idea is that many moons ago, our ancient ancestors were these backwards, violent people who lived in caves and lived generally terrible lives, right? Uh, Here's how Redker Bregman puts it. This is one of my favorite quotes in the history world. He says, hey, let's start with a little history lesson. In the past, everything was worse. For roughly 99% of the world's history, 99% of humanity was poor, hungry, dirty, afraid, stupid, sick, and ugly. Dang, right? I mean, all of that and ugly too? How does he know ancient people were ugly? Maybe they think we're ugly. You know, you with all your gel, you putting your hair in the skinny jeans and this and that. But you get the basic idea. Everything used to be terrible, but now everything is always getting better. But is it really, you know, you really think everything is always getting better? I mean, we've made a lot of progress over the years, no doubt. 
We live way longer. We've got way more stuff. And most importantly, we got queso, right? And queso covers a multitude of sins. It's in the Bible, isn't it? No? should be if it's not. And yet all that being said, and even taking the queso into account, I'm not so sure that everything is always getting better. Are you? In his really interesting book called Civilized to Death, great read, Christopher Ryan puts it like this. He says, whether the wonders of our age are worth their exorbitant costs is a question each of us must ultimately ask for ourselves. Because if everything's so amazing, then why are so many of us so profoundly unhappy? It's a good question, isn't it? Right, let's just take our little bitty slice of the world into account. America is the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. You know, our, our unique mix of enormous natural resources and incredible technology and entrepreneurial creativity is something planet Earth has never seen before. There's never been anything like America. And yet, while we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, 40% of Americans donate less than 2% of their income to charity. And then 45% of Americans donate nothing at all, all year long. We're the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. And yet we're also one of the stingiest. On a related note, we constitute about 5% of the world's population. And yet we produce about 20% of the world's trash and consume about 25% of the world's resources. It would take about 5 planet Earths for everyone on planet Earth to live the lifestyle of an American. Now, I love being an American. I've been all over the world, and I'm always glad I'm an American. I love being an American. But I'm not so sure all of that sounds like progress. Are you? I don't know. And there's no need to single out America here, uh, because the simple fact of the matter is that at virtually every point in human history, the nations or civilizations who were the quote-unquote leaders of civilization, for all the good they might do, we're also prone to a certain and very serious sin. The sin of being in a hurry. And it's a serious sin. If you got your Bibles, let's turn to Deuteronomy 5. Read verses 12 through 15. I accidentally brought my phone up here, which tells you everything you need to know about the modern world. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. It'll also be on the screen for you. This is Moses talking. We heard from Moses last week. We're going to hear from him again. Moses says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So here in Deuteronomy 5, the people of Israel stand at the border of the promised land, ready to embrace their 
destiny. For the last 40 years, they've been wandering around in the wilderness, waiting to inherit the promised land, become a nation that would bless all the nations of the world. And so as they stand there on the edge of the Jordan River, Moses reminds them how they got there. It says it's important that you remember how you got here to this place. And specifically in our text today, he's reminding them about the Ten Commandments and even more specifically about the Sabbath commandment. You shall observe the Sabbath. But did you notice the slight difference in the Sabbath commandment as it appears here in Deuteronomy 5 as opposed to the way it originally appears in Exodus 20? Okay, as a reminder, we'll read it again. This was our main text for last week. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, you're not going to work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here in Exodus 20, the Israelites are told, To observe the Sabbath, right? To take 24 hours to rest and enjoy God's good creation because that's what all this awesome stuff on planet Earth is for, right? It's meant to be enjoyed. You were not made to be busy. You were made to watch 100 billion stars burn in the night sky. But here in Deuteronomy 5, the rationale for Sabbath is a little bit different. And the main difference is found in verse 15. Now let's read it again. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you up out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So here, Moses invokes the memory of the Exodus. You remember the Exodus? The central event of the Old Testament. People of Israel in slavery in Egypt, making brick after brick after brick after brick for Pharaoh and the Egyptian Empire. They cry out for help. God delivers them and brings them out of Egypt. And so as these liberated slaves stand on the edge of the promised land, God reminds them that they were once slaves, and this is very important, okay? God reminds them that they were once slaves by commanding them to observe the Sabbath, okay? God says, look, you shall not work on the Sabbath, And neither shall your sons or your daughters or your male servants, your female servants, even your animals. They can't work on the Sabbath because you need to remember that once upon a time, God liberated you from slavery so that you could rest. Because you need to remember that unlike Pharaoh, our God does not exploit or enslave people in order to build an empire. Because you need to remember that our God is building a kingdom of justice and compassion. And the idea here is that the observance, observance of Sabbath is central to the creation of a just and compassionate society. Okay? The observance of Sabbath is central to the creation of a just and compassionate society. And Moses chooses to make this point, okay? just as the Israelites are entering the promised land. Because he wants to remind them that God did not free them from slavery just so they could become another cruel and merciless empire like Egypt. God says, look, all the leading civilizations of this world are all playing this game, and you know the game. Everybody's trying to play this game where they try to become great and important. And we need to get clear here. I am not here to help you get ahead in that game. 
God says, just so we're clear, I'm not here to help you become a great nation. I'm not here to help you get ahead. In fact, I'm here to make you fall behind. In fact, better yet, I'm here to help you stop playing the great and influential game altogether. Because there are more important things in life than being great and influential. Namely, justice and compassion. That's more important than being great and influential. So, show of hands, how many of you in the room today feel like it would probably be a good thing if you were a more compassionate person? I don't know about y'all, I need more hands. You know, I need like five, six hands. Yeah, I think we all know it would probably be great if we were more compassionate. And so why do you think we struggle with it so much, with compassion? You know, is it because we're, we're mean, because we're hard-hearted? Well, maybe. But what if I told you that the main reason you struggle with compassion is not because you're mean, but rather it's because you're in too much of a hurry. That's why you struggle with compassion. So back in the 70s, these two Princeton social psychologists performed what I think is the greatest experiment in the history of the world. Okay, here's how it worked. They gathered together these Princeton Seminary students, and they asked them to preach a parable on the sermon, uh, preach a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Y'all remember the Good Samaritan? There's the wounded man on the side of the road. He's right there. All the religious people just walk like right past him. You remember it. So these seminary students are about to preach this sermon about this wounded man who was ignored by all the religious people in a building across campus. And just before they leave, they're told one of two things. One group of students is told that they need to hurry up and get on over to the building because they're running behind and they're going to be late. The other group of students is told they need to head over. They can take their time. They're running behind in the building, so they might have to wait for a while. Anyways, in other words, one group of students is sit across campus in a hurry. The other group is sent across campus in not a hurry. And here's where the experiment just gets awesome. On their way across campus to preach a sermon about a wounded man on the side of the road who was ignored by all of the religious people. These seminary students are forced to walk through an alleyway where they encounter an actor who is pretending to be a wounded man. He's like lying against the dumpster. He's crying. He's calling out for help, asking these seminary students, they will please help him. And can you guess what happened? Well, most of the students who were not in a hurry stopped to help the wounded man, 63% of them. But almost none of the students who were in a hurry stopped to help the man. So let's just let this sink in for a second, okay? You're an aspiring pastor, and you are on your way to go preach a sermon about a wounded man on the side of the road who was ignored by all of the religious people. And you walk across a wounded man on the side of the road. And basically every single person who was in a hurry still walked right past the man. In summarizing their findings, here's what the researchers concluded. They said a person not in a hurry will probably stop to help a person in distress. But a person in a hurry is likely to keep going. Thinking about the Good Samaritan did not increase helping behavior. But being in a hurry decreased it. All that to say, hurry kills compassion. Hurry kills compassion. And you know this is true. I mean, how many times this week... 
did you say to yourself, you know, I should, I should really check on my grandmother. She was widowed earlier this year. I should check on her. Or, or my buddy's going through a divorce. I really ought to see how, how he and his kids are doing. But I just, I just got so much going on today, I just can't do it today. Or, you know, I should really run for the school board or city council or volunteer to mentor at-risk youth. Like, I should do that, but it's just such a busy season in my life. I just really don't have time. Maybe later. Or I should really sign up to lead a small group at the Vista. I know people really need connection right now, and it's so hard and it's weird. I should do that, but I got the kids and the kids' job, you know, and their sports. And so maybe I'll do that when things slow down a little bit, like when I'm dead. Or I should really put in the work to become like truly and deeply socially informed so that I can help our community become a better place. I should do that. But that would just take so much time. Man, I don't have time for that. And so maybe, maybe I'll just grab some fast food, microwaved, partisan news nuggets on CNN or Fox News instead. That's all I got time for. I know I do it. And so here's the deal. I know most of us are not mean or hard-hearted. I'm probably the only one, right? But if we're in a hurry, we're going to find it really hard to be just and compassionate. So many of us have good intentions, and we genuinely want to prioritize others. But we struggle very deeply with compassion because we're trying to be nice when what we should actually be trying to do is slow down because you will not be compassionate if you're in a hurry, no matter who you are. And that reminds me of this awesome fact from the animal kingdom. Uh, we all know grasshoppers, right? You know grasshoppers. Mellow, mild-mannered bug who nibbles on the grass in your backyard and then, you know, hops along. And we all know locusts. Right, out of control, demon bug that swarms so big they block out the sun and ravage entire crops in a few minutes. Okay, So we know grasshoppers and we know locusts. But did you know that grasshoppers and locusts are actually the exact same bug? Like I don't just mean like same species, same part of the bug family. No, I mean they are literally the exact same animal, exact same bug DNA coursing through the little bug bodies, but one politely nibbles on the salad bar in your backyard while the other hunts in ferocious packs and destroys everything you hold dear. And so how can they be the exact same bug and yet so different? Well, long story short, a grasshopper can become a locust if he lives in a situation where the competition for resources ramps up. Right? So, you know, you got a bunch of mellow grasshoppers there on the salad bar, you know, just hanging out. Everything's good. But then the rain stops, and the food supply dwindles, and this epigenetic reaction kicks in, and it literally changes their bodies. Their wings and their legs get smaller. They change colors. And whereas they used to say, hey, guys, come over here and try this delicious kale salad. There's more than enough to go around. Now they say what? Now they say, hey, I'm going to get mine. You get yours, but I'm going to make sure I get mine. And this is what happens to nations and civilizations and to families and individuals when we get in a hurry. We make that turn from grasshopper to locust. Instead of our wings and legs getting smaller, our hearts and our minds get smaller. We get fixated on getting ours. 
and we trample any bug who gets in our way. And I know all this sounds a little bit meta, right? You know, this idea that civilization as we know it is afflicted by the sin of hurry, the desire to get more, do more, be more, 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 more. I think deep down we all know that's true, but we also don't know what to do about it. Now, that's so big. How do you fix civilization? Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to First Thessalonians 4, and we're going to read three verses there where the Apostle Paul tells us how to fix civilization. He says, now ask the love of the brethren. You have no need for anyone to write you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And to tend to your own business and work with your own hands. Just as we commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Okay? So I don't know about you, um, but the last few months have left me feeling so impossibly small and insignificant. Anybody else? When I look around and I see so much hurt and so much anger and confusion and I want to do something about it. You know, I want to fix it. But I just, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, how do you fix some of these things? So a few weeks ago, I was reading and I came across this verse. And it was, it was like I could breathe again. You know? It's like for the first time in a long time I knew what I needed to do. Paul is writing to this ancient church in Thessalonica. And he's telling them how important it is that they love one another. And he says, you're doing great, but you actually, you need to do even more. You need to excel still more. That's what Paul says. But then he follows that up with something that's so incredibly underwhelming. I mean, we expect Paul to say, hey, make it your ambition, man, to to change the world, to fix civilization, to eradicate all injustice everywhere all the time. That's what we think Paul would say. But instead, Paul says this, hey, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition. This is what you should aim at. To lead a quiet life. Now say what? A quiet life? What good is that going to do anybody? We can't be quiet. We've got to be loud and busy if we're going to change the world and fix the world and fix civilization and get rid of injustice, right? That's the way I tend to think about it. But I suspect that Paul knows what he's talking about. Because besides Jesus Christ himself, there's probably nobody who did more to change the world than the Apostle Paul, right? And yet here is this man who changed the world, telling us to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life because he knows that when our lives become hurried and overextended, we become incapable of justice and compassion. Paul knows that no matter how pure your intentions, you will always walk right past the hurting person right in front of you if you think you're responsible for the hurt of the entire world. Does this make sense to you? You're not going, I can't help this person, man. i got to help everybody. And there's a name for this phenomenon. It's called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. And the basic idea is pretty simple. When you're constantly asked to care about everything, you find it impossible to care about anything. Right? Dave Chappelle's got this great bit where he talks about this. 
He remembers being a kid in 1986 and watching the Challenger space shuttle explode in his elementary classroom. Any of you remember this? Teacher willed the little TV in the classroom and you all watched the space shuttle explode. Not quite what everyone was expecting. And he talks about how it was this traumatizing event that haunts him to this day. And then he explains how hard it is for a kid to grow up right now in the modern world because they have to watch the Challenger explode every single day. Every single day, something terrible, the worst thing in the history of the world, the most awful, unjust thing you've ever seen happens. But the difference is that now we're all aware of everything that happens all the time. As Chappelle says, how can you care about anything when you know about everything it's too much all that to say the world is a broken place y'all a broken and unjust place but God has a plan to set it right a few thousand years ago God liberated slaves in order to turn them into a family of rest and justice that would stand as an alternative to the hurry and injustice of civilization. And God commanded them to take a day to rest, to take the time to fall behind in the rat race, to take the time to become good neighbors. And that family of rest and justice, do you know who it is? Yeah, it's It's you. (laughs) You are that family. It's us, the church. And our ambition is not to fix or control the world because newsflash, we're not very good at that. God hasn't asked you to fix or control the world. No, our ambition is to lead quiet, just, and joyful lives. To be faithful and unhurried with that little bitty plot of creation that is ours to care for. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the way you have loved us and been patient with us, though we have been very impatient. And God, in a lot of ways, we've been in a hurry because we thought it was our responsibility to fix the world and make it all right. And as a result, we are overwhelmed and we're overextended. We're impatient and we're angry and we just don't have the time to help the people in front of us. And so we pray that you would remind us that in Jesus, you have given us all the time that we need. We thank you that you have freed us from our bondage to ourselves so that we could slow down, take the time to be good neighbors. Slow down, take the time to help the people in front of us. And so God, I pray that in these moments, you would help a lot of us who have just been vainly trying to be nice to instead learn how to slow down and discover that justice and compassion will follow if we just give ourselves the time and the space to do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.